Luke 11, beginning in verse 37. It says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as Cole opened up, we thank you for this day. For even though we can't see the sun, we know it is risen because there is light. And Lord, it's just a physical reminder of the spiritual reality of your steadfastness, your faithfulness, your love towards us. Even in the midst of gloom, you are there, you are working for your glory and our joy. And Lord, I thank you for the text today. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 13.5 where it says, to examine ourselves to see if you're in the faith and if your faith is genuine. This is one of those texts where we can look at our own hearts and to see if we are in the faith. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what you are teaching us via your word, empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Now, I was born in central Pennsylvania outside Pittsburgh, and uh, but I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and I loved growing up in Tucson, Arizona. One, just because our winters were like 72 and we could play soccer outside, not like minus five right now. When it's 60 degrees, we're wearing parkas in Tucson, right? But you guys show up at negative seven, so I'm, that's one, one reason why I love there. I love the, I love the, the warmth of it. But what I really loved was the pinata parties. Growing up and going to birthday parties in celebration with pinatas there. Who loves whacking and stacking pinatas? Raise your hand, right? I loved it too. I had a strong pinata game, all right? I had a good pinata game. And uh, I love to whack the pinatas. In fact, 
if Pinata Smashing had a Hall of Fame, I would be in it. I'd be one of those guys in there. Anyone else be in there with me? Raise your hand. How about some of you guys? Some of you guys could care less about whacking the pinatas because you're all about the candy, right? And that was one of the drawbacks of, of being the guy that always knocked the pinata off and smashed it and cracked it open is we didn't get the best candy. But I was willing to make that trade-off because I just love the whack things growing up. Amen. Well, this morning, Jesus cracks open the pinata of false religion, of legalism, of religion of the Pharisees, the lawyers, also known as scribes. And what falls out of religiosity is not joy, is not salvation, but it's greed and wickedness. And, and now before we turn our noses to the scribes and Pharisees, we, we're pretty familiar with they are the legalists, they are the ones that are religious. And before we turn our noses and look down to them, if we were living back then, the crossing would fall under the teaching and the theology of the Pharisees. They were kind of the conservative uh, religious Jews back then. They believed in all of the Old Testament. They believed in the supernatural and angels and the resurrection power of the dead were the Sadducees. They were the liberals. They didn't believe in the whole of the New Testament, just the five books of Moses, the Torah. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So we would be under the teachings and following the Pharisees. And just like the Pharisees were prone to falling into the trap of religion and legalism and hypocrisy, so can we. So this isn't to say for us to read this and go, of course the Pharisees are like this, and let's look at the Pharisees' hypocrisy. No, this is a, again, as I pray, this is a text for us to examine our own hearts. To examine our own hearts. It's a timely message as we get to begin a new year in 2024. We want to root out any false religion in our lives. Any legalism, any hypocrisy in our lives. We want to walk in the freedom and the abundance of life that Jesus has secured for us. Amen? So let's look at this text through the eyes of our lives. Now we're getting back into Luke, so really quick, uh, the reason why the book of Luke was written, as you guys remember, all the way back in chapter 1 was, was Luke, uh, the Gentile doctor, was writing this letter to his friend Theophilus. And he said, the reason why I've written this letter is that you may be sure, that you may be certain that what you believe in about Jesus is true. So that's the whole theme throughout this letter, that everything written in here is to undergird that what Luke is writing about Jesus is true to his buddy Theophilus. And then in Luke chapter 9, we see that there's a change in the book, that Luke says that now Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's been ministering and doing works and miracles and healings uh, in the northern region of Israel, and now he's turned his face to Jerusalem to the cross. And from nine, chapter 9 to chapter 24, we see a lot of red letters, which means Jesus is speaking. So really, Luke 9 through 24 is about Jesus' teaching, where the first chapters of 9, 1 through 9, were about His works and His ministry. Now He's zeroing in on His teaching. And so that's where we are. And what we see in Luke 11, starting in verse 37, is we first see that religious people are obsessed with external performance. Religious people are obsessed with external performance. Look at verse 37 with me. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. 
And the Pharisees was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash his hands before dinner. So what we see right here is Jesus has been ministering to the crowds. He's been ministering to the tax gatherers, the sinners, the prostitutes, those on the outside. But we also see that Jesus also ministers to the self-righteous Pharisees and those on the religious, uh, the insiders. So the Jesus, the gospel, he is for everyone. He is for everyone, and so is his message. So he goes in here, and, and this Pharisee asks him to come down with him, and so he accepts the invitation. Now, there's some also crucial background that we have to understand here. When Jesus goes in, and it says that the Pharisees were astonished to see that Jesus didn't first wash his hands before dinner. Jesus went right into the house, went right to, well, they didn't have tables right now, right to the, where the food was, reclined, laid down, and started eating with his hands in the food. Now, some of you germaphobes right now are freaking out, right? You thought double dipping was bad. Some of you guys wouldn't even survive back then because you couldn't use your hands and seeing other people use their hands in the same food, you'd be freaking out. But this is how they ate back then. But this is what's crucial. Why was the Pharisee astonished? Why did the Pharisee actually, we see, attribute sin to Jesus for doing that? Well, we have to look at some other texts, Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15. Now, these are different events, but the same topic revolves around that. The question in those scenarios was the Pharisees looking at Jesus' disciples and saying, hey, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? And this is what Mark 7, 3 says. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they first wash their hands holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, this is key. What does it mean to behold to the traditions of the elders? What is, where is that? Where is that in Scripture? What is the tradition of the elders? Well, the tradition of the elders is also known as the oral law. Now, the oral law and the tradition of the elders is like a commentary on the Old Testament. It's when the, 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 the priests and the Pharisees, they would look at the Old Testament and they say, thus says the Lord, they would explain. It's like a commentary. And this really became central when Israel was in Babylonian captivity. They, they started to gather and really focus on God's word around them because they were in a foreign land. They couldn't go to temple and have temple worship. And so they really focused on God's word. And this is where actually the synagogues began in captivity. They would gather around God's Word, and then the priest and the, uh, would start to exposit God's Word orally. And so these traditions were passed on from generation to generation. These commentaries were passed on from generation to generation in the time of Jesus. And then in 100, about 150 years plus after Jesus, they would be written down in a book called the Mishnah, which Jews still follow today. So that's why this is so important. The tradition of the elders, the oral laws, were extra-biblical commentaries, and they would also um, kind of elevate the tradition of the elders to God's Word, and sometimes even over God's Word, like in this case. And so the reason why the Pharisee was astonished that Jesus didn't wash their hands according to the Scriptures is because they say that Jesus is in sin right now. He is breaking the tradition of the elders, and this was a no-no. Even though there was no scripture that says, you must wash your hands before you eat. It was in the tradition of the elders. And this also wasn't done for hygiene. This wasn't done for hygiene. I mean, it's wise to wash your hands after a hard day's of labor, right? Because they're dirty. But this was about ceremonial cleansing, 
Because the people of Israel, the Jews, would be out in, the, in rubbing shoulders with the Gentiles. And if you ever rub shoulders with the Gentiles and touch them or touch the things that they would have, you would become unclean. And so your hands would become unclean, they would think, and you'd have to come in, and before you touched anything, you would have to wash your hands. And so they, how they did it is you had to wash your hands from the fingertips to the wrist. And so you would go in, and they would kind of dump water. They would hold their hands up like this. You would dump water, and it would go down past your wrists, and then they would turn them over, and they'd do the same thing. At that point, after you've done that, you'd be able to eat your food. Jesus did not do this. They went straight in. And so the Pharisee, looking at Jesus, thought he was defiled in sin for not following the tradition of the elders. So that's huge. Now, verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make also the inside? Verse 41. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus sees right through the Pharisees' hypocrisy, through their religiosity, through their legalism. He says right through, in fact, in Mark and Matthew, it tells us, he says, you guys elevate the traditions of the elders over the Word of God. And so he confronts them. He teaches them. He says, you are obsessed with washing the body. You're obsessed with outward performance. You're obsessed with everything on the outside while your heart on the inside remains defiled and unclean. And that doesn't make sense. The God who has formed you is more concerned about your inside, your heart, rather than your external appearance. You see, here's the summary Religious people are obsessed with outside performance. And they could really care less about what's going on on the inside. They are more focused on washing their hands, their performance, rather than having their hearts washed. Have you ever done this? It's like you, you wash, you have a dishwasher, you wash the dishes from the night before, your coffee cup for the morning is in there, so you go and you, in the morning, you look, you for that coffee cup, your special coffee cup that you always use like me, and you look at it like, oh, it's clean from the outside, but you never really look on the inside. Then all of a sudden you pour the coffee in there, and then you take a drink, and all of a sudden that foreign substance is in there, right? From last night's dinner. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Go ahead and raise your hand, right? Yeah, we all do. And that's what the Pharisees are like. On the outside it looks good, but on the inside of the cup they are rotten to the core. Do you know any people like that? Do you know any people that claim to be Christian, but this describes them? One of the greatest hindrances to the gospel going forward is religious hypocrites. Those that name the name of Christ, and on the outside they look good, but when you get around them, the gospel has not penetrated their hearts, and they're just mean, nasty, unloving people. Right? Does anyone know that? We know that's a reality. Therefore, Jesus kind of hits the religious by saying you can't make your heart clean through Purell. Through outward performance. And this is why every week we don't preach therapeutic deism or moralism. We preach the Gospel. We preach the Gospel and its implications. 
We preach that it begins on the inside. It begins with the transformed heart. And that transformed heart then informs on how you and I live. It changes how we live. It makes us clean. That's what makes your hands clean, is a clean heart. Psalm, 34, uh, Psalm 24 says this, What or who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Who shall go to heaven? The one with a clean heart and clean hands. The Pharisee is looking at Jesus and saying He is unclean, and yet the Son of God is in their midst. He is the most clean person ever set foot in His home. Yet they can't see it because they're all about external performance. So that's the first point. The second point is this. Religious people load people down with burdens and death. Religious people load people down with burdens and death. Look at Luke eleven forty two through 52 We see that Jesus gives six woes. Six woes here. Now, uh, he's, Jesus has already done this in Luke. He's already given some woes. And depending on the context, determines the definition and how you kind of um, look at the woes, what they mean. Have the, the woes have a variety of meanings in Scripture. And here, these woes are a pronouncement of judgment on the Pharisees unless their life changes. I love how R.C. Sproul says it. He says this. He says, These woes are the strongest verbal form of warning and judgment to come against the Pharisees unless there's a change in their heart. Unless there is a change in their heart. And again, this is, this is pertinent for us. This is where we want to stop. This is where we want to focus. And this is where we want to see these woes through the lens of our own lives. To see if there's any of these tendencies in our own hearts. This legalism, this religiosity, this hypocrisy that dwells in the Pharisees and the scribes can also dwell in us, and we want to root them out. We want to root them out. Look at verse 32. <clears throat> but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so here's the first woe. And the first woe, he's like, He's looking at him, he says, hey, you guys tithe, which is good. In fact, you go above and beyond tithing. Tithing was giving 10%. That was kind of what was the, the lowest rule that the people of God would give back then. It's actually more like 30%. But here he says, you tithe 10%. You tithe 10%. And that's good. In fact, you go above and beyond. But here's the deal. The law of Moses never said you had to tithe 10% of every herb. You didn't have to tithe the mint and the rule of every herb. So again, they're going above and beyond. He says, that's good, but you. Here's where the woe comes in. Here's where the judgment comes in. But you neglect. You disregard. You pass over the greatest commandment in which all other commands are given. You fail to love God, and you fail to love your neighbor, which is justice here. To neglect justice is to neglect your neighbor. And that means you neglect to love him or her. He says you miss the most important commandment. You see, religious people tend to do the least amount that's required of them. Whatever requires the least effort. Their faith is like checking a box on a spreadsheet. Oh, went to church. Check. Oh, Gave, check. 
open my Bible for one time this month, check. And that's what they do. That's like basic. But loving God through serving and giving justice to your neighbor, walking through life with them, that takes sacrifice. It takes effort. It might even cause some suffering, right? That's what God is looking at. That's what happens when your heart is changed from the inside out. First and foremost, you love God. You wanted everything you do to do for His glory. And you want to serve your neighbor. You want to lay down your life for your neighbor. But it's hard. Here's one way you might be able to sum up a religious person. Is that their faith is more like a spreadsheet than a servant faith. They have a spreadsheet kind of faith, but not a servant faith. James 1 says this, religion that is pure, that is undefiled before God, is that you visit the widows, the orphans, and you keep yourselves unstained by the world. And what James is saying here, it's not that works save you. Again, it's not about performance saving you, but what he's saying is if you have an inward changed heart, if you love God and you love your neighbor, it's going to propel you to do good works. It's going to propel you to tithe. Yes, keep doing that. Keep giving to the church. Amen. But it's also going to propel you to love your neighbor, to love others. So that's the first world. The second world, look at verse 33, uh, 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Now, this doesn't need much explaining. You guys know what this means. Religious people love to have their ego stroked, right? They, love to have, they like to have the best seats in the house. If you see him out in the, you know, at the supermarket and you walk up to him, he's like, oh, hey, Rabbi, so-and-so, your, your, your message was great. And they're like, that's Dr. Rabbi to you, right? Kiss the ring. I mean, they, they want their ego stroked. Listen, religious, legalistic, hypocritical people would rather hear the praises of men than the voice of God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Check your heart. Is that, could that maybe describe you? The last woe from Jesus to the Pharisees is a direct hit and really should cause all of us to pause and really, again, look at our own lives. Look at verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now we're like, what in the world does that mean? For a Jewish person, the, the Scripture said, if you came in contact with a, a dead body, you would become unclean. And also it says, if you even walked over a grave of a dead body, you would become unclean. And so you'd have to go through this great week-long ceremony to become clean if you touched a dead body or walked over a grave. Like during the busy seasons of Jerusalem and like during the Passover season and the festival seasons, they would actually, as Matthew says, whitewash the, gra- the, the stones of the graves so people would know where the graves are. So, hey, oh, don't want to walk over that grave, right? So they didn't want to be defiled. So they could go and have temple worship. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is how we can sum it up. This is what he's saying to the Pharisees. He says, We know that those who walk over an unmarked grave are unclean and will become defiled. Therefore, those who walk and follow you and your teaching become like those that walk over the unmarked graves. They become defiled. They become unclean. 
those who follow you. Unwillingly, unknowing it. You should be the ones leading them to God, but you're the ones actually leading them away from God. So woe to you, Pharisees. Now this is a caution for all of us who teach God's Word. And also will go hand in hand with the last woe to the lawyers. Anyone who teaches God's Word, which is all of us, we all teach God's Word at some level, need to be cautious here and make sure that we are leading people to Jesus and not away from Jesus. We need to check our theology and the the practical implications of our theology. Do they lead to Jesus where there is life, joy, and abundant life, or do they lead away from Jesus where there's condemnation, frustration, and guilt? Uh, there's, there's a lot of times, I have a lot of conversations with individuals over my 25 plus years in ministry, and, and there's times where I'll get into rooms with religious peoples and we'll talk three hours, and all they'll do is highlight how they're so obedient, their duty, how they follow Jesus. But you know what they never talk about? Jesus and the Gospel. And how He has impacted their heart. It's always about what they are doing because that's where their identity is in. It's all about the imperatives, the commands, without highlighting the motivation or the reason why they can live out in the indicatives and what is true about you in Christ. That's why I love how Sinclair Ferguson says, he puts it like this. He said, the great gospel imperatives, commands to holiness are ever rooted in the indicatives of grace. Because it's the indicative of the indicatives of grace, what is true about you in Christ, that are able to sustain the weight of those commands. In other words, the only reason why you and I could live out those commands that God has commanded us is because Jesus has done a work in us. Because He has already gone forth and He has already fulfilled the law perfectly in your place, in my place. And now we can follow Him, not out of duty, but out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, out of joy. The point is you need both. Where the Scripture commands us clearly to follow Him, yes, we obey. We walk in obedience. We want to follow those commands. But we always must understand it's not in our own ability where we can do that. It's because God has given us His Holy Spirit. He has opened up our eyes and given us the ability to now willfully follow those commands. So that is huge. So those are the first three woes to the Pharisees. And now we look at the next three woes to the, to the lawyers or the scribes. We, we read that there's other people at this dinner event. More than just Jesus and the Pharisees, there's also these lawyers. Again, the lawyers, scribes, it can be synonymous. These are experts in the Bible. Think theologians, think seminary professors, Bible scholars. Look at verse 45 of chapter 11. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And notice Jesus respond. How does he respond? Oh man, bro, I am so, so sorry I have offended you. I'm sorry I triggered you with this. Please, please forgive me. Is that how Jesus' response? No, I love Jesus' response. The lawyer comes up and says, hey, bro, you've insulted us. He goes, yep, whack, you know. <laughs> Woe to you, lawyers. He just keeps on going. Why? Because these guys are leading people away from Jesus and not to him. 
Woe to you lawyers also. This statement shows us through Jesus that there's different ways in which you exercise grace and truth depending on how those you're addressing respond to the gospel or how hostile they are to the gospel. There's not one simple way just to address everyone. Jesus tells us this. And this for me has been one of the most helpful practical ways and examples through the gospel on how to deal with people as a pastor and also as another Christian. How do you, how do you deal with people? Because there seems to be two types of people. Those that see their sin and see their need for help and those that don't. Typically, the latter, those that don't see their need are the religious, the hypocrites, the prideful, the arrogant, the self-righteous. And those that do are the ones that see themselves in their need because they see their sin and they can't do anything about it. And so how does this play out? Jesus deals with all, with grace and truth, but how He expresses that is different. With the unrighteous, with people like the woman at the well, or Jairus, remember Jairus a couple chapters ago where his daughter was dying? Jairus comes and falls on his face. Here's this guy, a leader of the synagogue. He falls down at Jesus' feet and pleads with Jesus. With those types of people who approach Him with that, with that heart, Jesus is long-suffering. He's compassionate. There's a tenderness to Him. He doesn't overlook their sin, but He, but he inner ends with them and listens to them talks to them. But with the religious hypocrites, also known as wolves, as we see here, these Pharisees and these lawyers, these scribes, people that are leading people away from Jesus, he's, he's pretty stern. He's pretty direct. He calls out their unrighteousness in a very matter-of-fact way. You fools! Now, if you're thinking, you know Bible, you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and you go like, hey, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't call anyone a fool. Now, these are two different words in the original language, and the fool that he was responding to in Matthew chapter 5 is like, you don't go out of your way to insult people out of anger. That's unbiblical. That's sinful. Here, when you see someone acting like a fool, you call them a fool. That's okay. You don't lie to them. You don't soften the blow. And in particular, with religious people, self-righteous people, you're direct. And you can call them a fool. I love how Martin Luther calls, summarizes this. He says this. He says, with the wolves, with the religious, you cannot be too severe. But with the weak sheep, you cannot be too gentle. Those are words of wisdom for us to live by. Think about who you're ministering to right now. Are they wolves or are they hurting sheep? Because that's going to inform you on how you walk through life with them. And most of us in here, 90% of the time, we are walking with other wounded sheep. Therefore, our counsel, our walking alongside them, should be like Jesus with the woman at the well. We enter in with compassion. We enter in with tenderness. We listen to them. We bear their burdens just like Christ did. And every now and then, you're going to have to deal with a wolf. And we've had to deal with several wolves here throughout our 14 plus years of the crossing. 
And this is where the plurality of elders is really a gift of God for you. Because people, shepherds that we're called to shepherd you, they have shepherds have a, a, a staff and a rod. And depending on our pastors, I'll let you guess who is good at wielding the shepherding st- stick, right? And who is good at wielding the rod, right? I love wielding the rod when it's time to wield the rod. I got no problem doing that. Joey Nichols, that guy loves to serve with the staff. Guy loves to serve the staff. But of course, we use the rod like Jesus would, right? So this is just a good practical application on how we deal with people. Now, let's quickly get into the woes. The first woe, verse 46. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You guys know what this is. This is the classic religious person that you deal with that says, do as I do, or do as I say, not as I do, right? I hate those type of people, right? Don't you? Do as I say, not as I do. If, if I, I, in athletics, we had, I had coaches like this, and the coach would say, this is how you do it. But then you'd see in his life what he didn't really believe that. He did something totally different. I hated playing for those coaches. I never did what they did, what they said, because they never did what they said. Here, the lawyers were these people. Do as I say, not as I do. For instance, again, think about going back to the tradition of the elders. The Bible says back then, keep the fourth commandment. We are to keep the Sabbath. Under our covenant, they were to keep the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy, right? One of the Ten Commandments. That's good. But the problem is, there wasn't much else in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, that explained on how to keep the Sabbath. There were, there were a handful of verses, right? Keep the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Six days you shall work, Leviticus says, but on the seventh day you shall rest from your work. Well, this is where the tradition of the elders... And these commentaries, and even the mission of years after Jesus, came in and said, well, this is how you keep the Sabbath. Again, extracurricular biblical commentary. Not much input. So how do you do it? Let me just read you some of the oral traditions. It's comical. This is how you keep the Sabbath. One, it says you cannot bury a burden on the Sabbath. Well, what does a burden look like? to carry on the Sabbath. This is how they measured out a burden. A burden is food equal weight to a dry fig. You weren't allowed to do anything or carry anything that was heavier than a dry fig. Not only that, or wine enough to mix in a goblet, or milk enough to produce one swallow. So if you drank some milk and you were too swallow, you're a two swallow sinner right there, right? And they got you. Or, there's the last one, ink enough to write two letters with. Only allowed to write two letters. You wrote three, you're a three-letter sinner. It's like, what? This is comical. I mean, you needed a Sabbath from the Sabbath, right? This is what Jesus is pointing out. He's pointing out the foolishness of these man-made rules. It's not what God intended to live by. 
Again, these rules became so overwhelming, you would need a Sabbath from the Sabbath. Again, we can all be guilty of this. I'm really going to highlight in the last woe. So let's get to the last woe. First is the second woe here, verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs and the prophets whom your fathers killed, verse 51. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, that means basically from Genesis to the last book in the Hebrew Bible, which is Chronicles. Who perish between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be quiet of this generation. Basically, the summary of what Jesus says is religious people act like gods, and they want nothing to do with the true God and His true plan, purpose, and commandments of Him. Throughout the years, God would send prophets and apostles to God's people, and they would reject Him. And now here is Jesus, not just a prophet, but the prophet. The time in history where the greatest revelation has ever been revealed, Jesus, God in flesh, we just celebrated it, God in flesh in front of these men, and they reject Him. Verse 53 and 54, they look for ways to trip up Jesus so they can bring Him to judgment and ultimately put Him to death. And Jesus says, this is the woe. You are rejecting me outright. Final role, verse 52. This is really the final strike. Look at verse 52, chapter 11. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hindered those who were entering. This is the final stake. This is the worst woe. Because the religious leaders, these lawyers, these scribes, again, they were supposed to lead people to Jesus. They were supposed to be the experts in the law. They themselves will not enter heaven. And those that follow them will not enter heaven. Why? Because they lock up the truth of the Scriptures. They don't make Him accessible to the people. The very men who are called to teach and lead people to understanding and unlock the Scriptures are locking it and making it inaccessible. And this for me was the biggest one this week where I really had to stop and pause and ponder and look at my own heart. And not only myself, but all pastors who get up here and lead you. This is our calling. We are called to unlock the Scriptures to you, not to lock them. We are called to open up the beauty, the joy, the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness, the steadfastness, the faithfulness of the Gospel. And woe to us if we don't do that. If we lead you in an opposite direction. Listen, our desire here at the crossing again is to unlock by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's Word to you each and every Sunday, and not give our own interpretation or our own personal preference and convictions that will bind you up. We want you to be free and walk in that freedom that the Gospel gives. <clears throat> and really, again, this is for anyone who teaches God's Word. We want to make sure to preach the whole counsel of God's Word and not to elevate our preferences and thoughts to the same level 
or above Scripture, just like the religious leaders. Where there are clear commandments, where we can speak with the authority of God Himself, we will do that. Marriage is between one man and one woman. We will preach that. But there's also some topics in here that aren't so black and white. And that's where we can guide and give our wisdom, our experience, maybe some of our preference, but at no point are we going to say, thus says the Lord, you must raise your children just like Rita and I raised our children. And there's so many, there's so many topics that we can talk about here about that. Think about the spiritual disciplines. The Bible says we are to call to meditate on God's Word. What does that look like? I can give you some suggestions. I can give you some wisdom. But I can't say this is exactly how you can do it. Prayer. Music in the church. How about marriage? Marriage, we're called to, again, a man and a woman. And God gives us specific roles on what men are called to. Men are called to lead the family. We are the leaders of the family. We are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, as we love our own selves. We're called to cherish our wives. We're called to nourish our wives. We're called to live with our wives in an understanding way. How do we do that? It might look different for me than it does you because your wife is different. Wives, you're called to respect and submit to your husbands. What does that look like? Do you see, do you see how, how teaching God's Word it can, can, can be tricky sometimes between the black and white and the gray? How about this? Entertainment. Can you go to R-rated movies? Or just PG movies? How about music? Can we tell you what to listen to, what not to listen to? There's so many more. How do you respond to the government? Should you homeschool your kids? Should you not homeschool your kids? I mean, how about eschatology, end time? I mean, there's so many different layers. Here's a big one. How about alcohol? Again, where the, where the Bible is clear, we're going to be clear. The Bible nowhere says you cannot have a drink. It doesn't say that anywhere. It does say do not get drunk. So therefore, do not get drunk. That's clear. That's black and white. Scripture also says that we are to obey the laws of the land. So if you're 21, that's when you can have a drink. Not at 19, not at 20, but at 21. You need to obey the laws of the land. But here's where it gets a little bit gray. How about Romans 14? Do not cause your brother or sister to stumble. Some of us struggle with alcohol. So how do you apply that verse? Does that mean that you can never have a drink? To only drink in your house when no one can see you? To only drink one drink when you're out at a restaurant? Like, where, where is the line? How can we, what do we preach to you guys? Again, we, our desire again is to to preach clear commandments, the black and white, we're going to be black and white. But where there's gray, we're going to preach conscience, as Romans says. Personal preference, but we're not going to elevate that up above Scripture. This is where we use wisdom. This is where we use wisdom. So here's our desire at the crossing. We want to bind your hearts and conscience to the clear commands of God's Word. 
and not to some Christian Mishnah written by us. What guides us is Augustine. This is a good guide. In essentials, in the black and white issues, in the clear commands of Scripture, there's unity. In non-essentials, in those things that are a little bit gray, there's some wiggle room. You can be a Christian and have this opinion, and you can have a Christian and be this opinion. There's liberty. There's liberty. But in all things, there's charity. There's love. So let us have this grid as we move forward with one another. This is a tough portion of Scripture because Jesus is calling out the religious hypocrisy in His people. And so let us listen and take examination from R.C. Sproul this morning. Is your Christian faith something that flows from within you outwardly? Or is it something that you just wear on the outside on Sundays? Do an inventory check and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word. A good Word. A good Word to start out 2024 with. Because it causes us to examine our hearts to see if we're in the faith. And I know most of these people here, and I know that they are in the faith. And so Lord, I just would pray that we would breathe wind in the sails of one another, encourage one another. And if there's anyone here that has been living in the former, that has been living with outward performance-based faith and not a inward, gospel-centered faith, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that You would let them see You as their Lord and as their Savior. They would repent of their sins and trust in You. And they would immediately feel the weight and the burdens lifted off and the freedom and the joy and the abundant life that they will now live in and experience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.